Hello, and welcome to this episode of Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross, coming to you from our studio. Here at Nerd Roamer, we love nerding out and eating up all the knowledge that we can about the history, nature, and culture of the places we travel. But we were tired of burying our heads in the guidebooks. With so much out there to see and learn, let us do the heavy lifting on digging up fun facts and fascinating stories. Whether you're on the road or just want to learn more about the world out there, we've got you covered. Deep dives for long drives. This is Nerd Roamer. Roam wisely. Welcome back for our Utah series. Undoubtedly, you've heard the names before. This pair are icons of the American West, some of the most famous outlaws ever to ride the range. They've been the subject of at least 16 Wild West movies and television productions, including the famous 1969 film. That's right, we're talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think part of the reason why you see this story so captivating for fans of the American West is that they give you a greatest hits of the best spots of the American West. So come along with us. We're going to travel around. Let's get one thing out of the way right away. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, amazing names, clearly not the real names of this pair. Butch Cassidy's real name is Leroy Parker and... The Sundance Kid's original name is Harry Alonzo Longabo. Those two are a very real pair of individuals that lived in the 19th and 20th centuries, and we're going to go through their lives. For the rest of this podcast, for consistency and clarity, we're going to refer to them as Butch and Sundance, but just remember that their real names are Robert and Harry. Butch was a Utah boy, born and bred. He came into the world in 1866 in Beaver, Utah, which is a town that stands to this day along I-15 in roughly central Utah, directly between Las Vegas and Salt Lake City. You can stop at the gas station there and get these cute little magnets that say, I heart beaver. I highly recommend stopping if you're there. His parents were immigrants from Great Britain, and at the time it was actually pretty common for the Mormon church to send missionaries to England, generate converts, and then those converts would come back to settle in the American West with the Mormons. After his parents immigrated, roughly 10 years before he was born, they settled down on a ranch in central Utah. Butch was born and raised on this ranch in central Utah. You can find his exact childhood home, actually, if you're in southern Utah, you want to check it out. You get off the highway near Beaver, and there's a road back towards Panguitch, kind of on the way to Bryce Canyon. And you can follow the signs or look it up on the internet but you can actually go to his childhood home. It's kind of interesting. Eventually, as a teenager, Butch runs away from home, as teenagers will sometimes do. During this time, he wound up working with a cattle rustler named Mike Cassidy and also worked in a butcher shop. So when you're thinking about Butch Cassidy going from being Leroy Parker to Butch Cassidy, where do you think that name came from? He stole the last name from the rancher, and he worked as a butcher for a while, so is known as Butch. So that's where you get Butch Cassidy. Fun fact. Bust that out at parties if you want to. Free of charge. Anyway, he was probably around 14 years old when he first turned to a life of crime, and it started out in pretty petty fashion. Uh, apparently, he'd headed into town to buy some fancy new duds after working on the ranch, and when he got to the clothing shop, it was closed. So what's a ne'er-do-well 14-year-old boy to do? Come back another day? No, 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 no. Just a little bit of light breaking and entering. Some B&E to break things wide open for him. So he busted into the shop, 
stole a pair of jeans so that he could look fly. Maybe this was for a girl. Who knows? And while he was at it, he snagged some pie, too. Just like a cartoon, you know, just stealing the pie off the windowsill. He left a note saying he would pay the next time he was in town. But the clothing store proprietor was kind of straight-laced, not super pleased with this happening, and moved forward with having him charged with burglary. Uh, Eventually, Butch actually beat the rap and got acquitted. When Butch turned 18, he hit the open road again, traveled across the great American West all over the place. He was working as a cattle driver, moving horses, cattle, some of which was possibly done legitimately, some of which was maybe illegitimate, maybe a little bit of both. Anyway, in 1889, at the age of 23, this is when Butch really starts to ramp up his criminal career. So he turns to more serious crime when he and three other compatriots robbed the San Miguel Valley Bank in Telluride. As an aside, the year after this bank robbery in Telluride, the guy who owns the bank, L.L. Nunn, wound up opening a hydroelectric dam that's still there to this day. Uh, And the dam was built to power some of these local mines. The significant part of the dam is that that dam in Ophir, Colorado, is actually the first industrial AC power plant in the world. So just kind of a weird coincidence. Uh, You can look up the Ames Hydroelectric Generating Plant. It's still kind of in that area to this day. And just know, crazy coincidence, first industrial power plant, same guy that owned the bank that Butch Cassidy robbed as his first bank. So kind of funny. Anyway, back to Butch Cassidy. So you're Butch Cassidy. You're robbing banks now in the late 1800s. How much do you think that Butch was able to get away with in this robbery? Little bit, lot of bit. Give you a minute to think about it. He and his crew were actually able to get away with $21,000. So you're like, well, that sounds good, but not like crazy good money. I mean, this sounds like a lot of trouble to go to for $21,000. Just remember that $21,000 in late 1800s money would be $600,000 nowadays. So another, just a bonus general trivia question for anyone out there listening. These days, what do you think the average amount of money is that a robber nets in an average bank robbery? In the U.S., at least. It's going to be different in different countries. But in the U.S., what's an average take from a bank robbery? Can you make a career out of robbing banks in the United States these days? It's actually pretty tough. Uh, the the average take is only around 4300 bucks or so, and it's pretty high-risk occupation. So just remember, crime doesn't pay kids, at least not this particular crime, uh, especially compared to the good old days. You know, maybe back in the good old days of Butch Cassidy, it paid quite well, but these days, not so much, especially now with all these electronic transactions. Butch got paid, but probably you should stay in school or just get a regular job or start a business or something like that. This $21,000 was a good chunk of change for Butch and his buddies. In order to hide out from law enforcement, they escaped to Robber's Roost. So Robber's Roost is going to come up a couple times in this story. Just know that Robber's Roost is this famous outlaw hideout in southeastern Utah. So it's in between kind of where Canyonlands and Capitol Reef National Park is today. It's really, really beautiful. So you can go hiking there today. It's full of these red rock slot canyons. It's just totally gorgeous, very isolated. You can just imagine the twisting, turning mazes and the rocks and the washes and the the just hidden box canyons. This is perfect territory for an outlaw to hide out in if they want to be hidden from the law. So if you were a lawman looking for robbers on the run 
it would have been just a total nightmare trying to find them in this area. If you ever drive through, it's kind of Hanksville, Utah is kind of maybe the heart of this area at this at this time or during these days. And if you go there, you can just look around and you can picture a bunch of outlaws just riding off into the sunset. It's it's very much like it was back in the day. So I highly recommend checking it out. Anyway, after laying low at Robber's Roost for a while, Butch is able to use some of the funds from this robbery to kind of legitimize himself a little bit. He purchases some land up near Dubois, Wyoming to use as a home base. Even with this ranch, he wasn't able to completely fly under the radar and did wind up getting caught and spending nearly two years in prison for a little bit of horse thievery. As an aside, Dubois, Wyoming is pronounced Dubois. You would think looking at it that it would maybe be like Dubois because it's French, but they're very firm on the notion that it is pronounced Dubois. So go, you can even go to the town's website, and it's really cute. That's like one of the first things on the website is like, this is how you pronounce the town. So anyway, after Butch gets out of prison, after he's released, this is when some of his more infamous activities really begin. And really what we're going to be talking about especially is the train robberies, because train robberies, I think, just really captivate people's imagination when they think about the old American West and old American West outlaws. In 1896, after he's gotten out of prison, Butch assembles a gang of other people who kind of are ruffians like him, and they take on the name the Wild Bunch. They first rob a bank in Montpelier, Idaho, which is just north of Bear Lake, and they net about 7000 bucks. And just after that, Butch winds up recruiting another guy into the gang named Harry Longabaugh. So this is, if you remember, the Sundance Kid. So this is when the Sundance Kid enters the picture. It's after his first couple crimes. He's put together the Wild Bunch. Sundance Kid enters the picture at this point. And they're going to be just besties going forward. Their first big crime is they knock over this payroll clerk in Castlegate. So back in the 1800s, you know, they didn't have direct deposit when you were working. So when you were getting paid, say you're a miner working in a mine, they would have a clerk who would come around and give out cash. You weren't getting like a check to take to the bank. You weren't getting direct deposit. There was a guy who just brought cash when it was time to get paid. And so knocking over a payroll clerk was one way to get a quick payday if you were a robber. So they get another $7,000 out of knocking over this payroll clerk in Castlegate by modern day price, Utah. Again, they flee to robber's roost and they start trying to cook up what is going to be something huge. They want to do they want to do it big. They want to do it right. So they're trying to plant a big heist. Their next heist is one of their most notorious. So again, when you're thinking of a daring Wild West heist, you are thinking of the train robbery. In fact, if you think about Western movies, the train robbery is one of the most commonly depicted events in any sort of Wild West outlaw film. In fact, I think it's in just about every one that you could possibly watch. This goes back to what is basically considered the first Western ever, or one of the first Western ever, which is the movie The Great Train Robbery. This was made in 1903, so one of the first movies, period, just one of the first movies ever, and is about a bunch of Wild West outlaws holding up a train. And it probably shouldn't surprise you to learn that this movie was based on some of the heists of Butch Cassidy. So how does this all go down? So the year now is 1899. This is about two years after Butch and Sundance started running together. It's the middle of the night on the plains in Wyoming. Summer, the air is sweet with the smell of wildflowers, and the Union Pacific Railroad train, the Overland Flyer, is streaming across the western plains near Wilcox, Wyoming. 
if you want to check out the country that this was in, or if you want to kind of picture what this area is like, Wilcox, Wyoming is near Laramie, not too far off from where Interstate 80 is today. In fact, Interstate 80 is along a very similar route as the first Transcontinental Railroad. The Overland Flyer is approaching a trestle, so a little bridge over a low area. And upon approaching the trestle, the train engineer finds that the tracks are barricaded. He has to slow to a halt for these barricaded tracks. And I'm sure at that point he's going, oh gosh, oh no, we're out in the middle of nowhere and I'm being stopped. This cannot be good. A gang of men wearing white masks that look like they're made out of restaurant napkins tied around their faces boards the train. Ultimately, they dynamite the trestle that completely cut the train off, and they wind up separating the train into two pieces. So they've really isolated the loot. They're isolating the part that they're really interested in. There's an attendant present, E.C. Woodcock, who's guarding the express car. And the express car is where the safe is. So that's where the money is on these trains. So this train was transporting money. The express car where the money is is guarded by E.C. Woodcock. The gang orders him to open up the door and let them in. Woodcock, being a brave guy, he's not just going to let him into the express car without a fight, and so he refuses. So the gang winds up just using dynamite to blow the car open. They're like, if you're not going to open it for us, we're going to blow it open. So somehow Woodcock survives this explosion, but when the gang rushes in, they find that there is a safe that's also locked, and they need Woodcock to unlock it for them. But the guy, the poor guy, he's concussed. He cannot remember the passcode, and he's in no condition to open this safe for them. And so the gang hems and haws for a second and decides, well, if blunt force was good enough for the car, it's good enough for the safe, baby. So they blow that safe wide open. After dynamiting the safe open, they're able to obtain about $30,000. Think about that. That's a substantial amount more even than the San Miguel Valley Bank. So that's a lot of money. It's at this point that the Wild Bunch leaves Woodcock laying there, leaves the engineer, leaves the train, escapes into the night, covered in raspberry stains because the car had been carrying a harvest full of raspberries. Usually after these robberies, the gang would split up a little bit to make it harder to track them down. And later that week, two of the gang members got into a shootout with a sheriff named Hazen and killed the sheriff before fleeing into the hills. It's after the murder of this sheriff that another entity enters into this story to help with tracking down the criminals. And this entity is the Pinkerton Detective Agencies. If you have read a lot about the West or if you have watched, you know, Western movies, I'm sure that the Pinkerton Detective Agency has come up at some point. The Pinkertons, if you're not familiar with them, were basically this mercenary security service that was hired by large corporations in the 19th and 20th centuries. And in Western lore, you know, they were often used to track down outlaws. If you're a student of American history, you'll also know that they were employed as strike breakers. So when unions would organize these strikes, the companies would oftentimes hire the Pinkertons to come in and kind of brutally put down these strikes so that organized labor would have a harder time gaining traction. The founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, Alan Pinkerton, he enters into American history back in the American Civil War. So he was the chief of the Union Intelligence Service. As the chief of the Union Intelligence Service, he directed a lot of counterintelligence against the Confederates and then also foiled a plot against Abraham Lincoln prior to when Lincoln was actually assassinated. There were other assassination plots against him, and he had foiled one of those plots. He winds up 
inspiring the development of a lot of different entities. So not only does this private Pinkerton detective agency get founded by him, but his work with the Union Intelligence Service, that service eventually morphs into the Secret Service as well as the CIA. So this is kind of a foundation for a lot of things that persist to this day. After the war, Pinkerton goes private practice, makes a name for himself tracking down outlaws. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was known far and wide for relentlessly pursuing people. They could do things and go places that the law couldn't because they didn't have a jurisdiction. They were privately hired. Incidentally, the Pinkerton Agency lives on to this day. It's a subsidiary of Securitas, which is one of the largest global security companies. They're more security consultants these days, but they, they live on to this day. Understandably, Butch is not jazzed about having so much heat on him. So he tries to work things out through the government. So he's trying to reach some sort of agreement with Union Pacific Railroad so that he's not being tracked relentlessly. But before they can kind of come to an agreement in 1900, his gang knocks over another Union Pacific train near Tipton, Wyoming, which remarkably E.C. Woodcock is also the attendant for. So this guy gets knocked over by this gang twice and... At that point, that robbery is the final straw where Union Pacific is like, we're not going to try to reach any sort of agreement with you. We can't trust you. That robbery really kind of marks the beginning of the end for the Wild Bunch because they start to draw a lot of attention to themselves. As 1900 progresses, we see some more back and forth kind of dust-ups between the Wild Bunch and law enforcement. There's regular shootouts with both members of the gang and law enforcement perishing. There are these kind of tit-for-tat slayings in Utah where members of the Curry family, which is part of the Wild Bunch, wind up killing a sheriff and deputy in Moab. And then members of the Curry family are then killed by deputies and other vigilantes as retaliation. Just a lot of back-and-forth violence. In July 1901, Kid Curry, one of the members of the Wild Bunch, who's also a Curry family member, scores a huge haul by sticking up a Great Northern train up in northern Montana near the Canada border gets away with nearly $2 million in today's money. So this is when the pressure really becomes immense and the group just totally splinters. People are getting arrested all over the place. People are getting tracked down, shot and killed in shootouts. And Butch and Sundance decide, this isn't for us. We got to get out of here. And not just out of the American West. We've got to get out of the country. We've got to get out of the continent entirely. So Butch and Sundance, along with Sundance's lady want to put as much distance between themselves and the Pickertons as possible, so they travel to New York under fake identities and get on a steamship for South America. They wind up settling on a huge ranch on the banks of the Rio Blanco in the shadow of the Andes Mountains in Argentina. Things were quiet for them for a few years there until 1905, when a suspicious bank robbery draws the attention of the Pinkerton Detective Agency to the area. And you have to remember, they aren't constrained by any sort of jurisdiction, Country, state, city borders, none of that matters to them. So their attention is drawn to South America. This bank robbery literally occurs near the end of the world. We're talking about the Rio Gallegos area, which is near the windswept Strait of Magellan that separates the southern tip of South America from Tierra del Fuego, which itself is just separated by the southern Pacific from Antarctica. We are very much at the very bottom of the world here and somehow the Pinkertons get wind of it. The Pinkertons help coordinate a raid, but a friend in local law enforcement tips off Butch and Sundance, so Butch and Sundance are able to dip across the border into Chile and avoid the raid. 
It's at this point that Sundance's lady, Etta, decides that she's had enough and she's going back to America. So Sundance actually accompanies her back and returns to work with Butch at a Bolivian mine high in the Andes Mountains. So they've kind of taken on yet another identity working as miners way high up at 10,000, 14,000 feet in the Bolivian Andes. After this point, things really become shrouded in quite a bit of mystery. In 1908 is when Butch and Sundance possibly meet their demise. There's another payroll courier who's carrying money in southern Bolivia, and supposedly he's ambushed by two masked American men that many people presume to be Butch and Sundance. This is certainly from their playbook. This is going back to their first crime together was knocking over that payroll clerk in Price, Utah. So this is very much something that would be in the wheelhouse of Butch and Sundance. These two American men flee But vigilantes and law enforcement corner them in a different village and they get into a shootout and they surround them in a house. And eventually these two men perish like they they are killed in this shootout. The man presumed to be Sundance is basically riddled with bullet holes. And the man presumed to be Butch looks like he has a wound to his temple. So it looks like he may be off himself after seeing what happened to Sundance. I say that their ending is shrouded in mystery because they were never confirmed to be Butch and Sundance, and a lot of people have reported seeing the pair after their alleged demise. Reports of sightings range from Patagonia, where we know they had been, to the Pacific Northwest, to even Paris, France. So I don't know if this is like the Bigfoot and people are just seeing things, or or if they really did manage to escape out of there and this was just some other pair of American men who committed this robbery. There are numerous potential graves that have uh, been identified as potentially belonging to them from Bolivia to Washington State to Utah. Uh, And some of these have been excavated. None have ever conclusively been shown to be Butcher Sundance. They've tried DNA testing, but then we've never had a conclusive match. Fittingly, I think Butch and Sundance remain as elusive today as they did to those looking for them back in the 19th and 20th centuries. I want to thank you all for listening today. I cannot leave you without a knowledge nugget. So today, I am going to leave you with the following knowledge nugget regarding the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You want some fries with that knowledge nugget? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the 1969 movie starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, is arguably the most famous movie about Butch and Sundance. It's actually fairly closely based on their real lives. The screenplay by William Goldman was initially met by derision because numerous studio executives had a problem with them fleeing the country from law enforcement. As one studio executive put it, he said, John Wayne doesn't run away. It just didn't seem appropriate at the time for a Wild West hero or anti-hero to bail from a fight. Eventually, the film was picked up by 20th Century Fox, and when it was released, pretty negative reviews came for the movie. Eventually, the public warmed to the movie and it went on to win Academy Awards for Best Cinematography and Best Original Screenplay. And now it's widely regarded as one of the best screenplays ever written in any genre, and it's certainly thought of as being one of the greatest movies ever cast and one of the finest Western films ever created. Robert Redford, for his part, was so enamored with this character of the Sundance Kid that he wound up using the name Sundance for a lot of his future endeavors. With his earnings from the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as some other films, Robert Redford was able to buy a little ski area in Utah near Provo Canyon that at the time was named Timp Haven. He changed the name to the Sundance Ski Area. 
In the subsequent decade, he went on to co-found the Sundance Institute for the support of independent art and filmmaking, as well as the Utah-slash-U.S. Film Festival, which was later renamed to the Sundance Film Festival. The legacy of Butch and Sundance lives on to this day in ways that they probably could never, ever have imagined. Remember, for updates on future episodes and content, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NerdRomer, and you can find us to listen and or subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Until next time, keep roaming, nerds.